We'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and those great verses 6 and 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, particularly verse 7. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The remarkable words from one of the most moving documents in the New Testament, probably Paul's last letter written from prison, which has been described as a dismal underground dungeon in chains with death at hand. So what did he do, this great apostle? How did he relate to his sufferings, his afflictions, his imminent death? Did he languish? Did he lose heart? Most certainly not. He wrote this letter, and it's a wonderful letter, to Timothy, this young pastor. He wrote it to encourage him, to charge him, to prepare him for hardship himself, because they were living in perilous times, Paul's phrase, when corrupt religious leaders were at work, and they were facing persecution. So it was a tough age in which they were living, and it was hard going physically and psychologically for these early Christians. But the work must go on. Paul was passionate about that. It's a great work. It's God's work. So it must go on, even though I'm going to leave the scene. He was virtually saying to Timothy, you must take over. And as a father addressing his son, so Paul passes on these encouragements to his successor. And he urges him to guard the gospel, to preach the word, to hand it on to other people, to live righteously and soberly. It's a great message. It's a message for today. Paul is describing an age which is markedly similar to our own. The first century was a very immoral age. Lecky, in his history of ethics, said that it was probably the most immoral age in human history. And that was the world they were living in. And they had this message, this Christian gospel to bring to people, a message of hope, a message of salvation. So he urges Timothy to carry on, to go on, and not just to carry on and to go on, but to stir up the gift of God that was in him through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And then he adds this wonderful statement, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's the key. That's what enables us to go on. This is what God has done for us, this is the spirit we've received, and therefore we can go on right to the end. You notice that he speaks about two things. He speaks, first of all, about a special gift of the Holy Spirit given to Timothy to enable him to minister, what we call a charisma. And that gift had been given to Timothy through the laying on of the hands of the elders. Paul refers to that in the previous letter. God had called him, commissioned him, God had gifted him. 
And as a result, Timothy is to kindle that gift. He is to stir it up. He is to fan it into flame. He is to exercise it. He's not to hold back. He's not to be timid. He's not to be slow and recalcitrant. He's to exercise the gift that God has given him. That's vital. Paul urges him to do that. But he's also thinking of the gift of the Holy Spirit as such, given to all believers. There is this special endowment of the Spirit for ministry, as was the case in Timothy's case. But all believers have received the Holy Spirit. Notice how he broadens it out. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And it's quite clear that he's referring there to all believers. He refers more than once in this wonderful first chapter to other believers as well, to all Christians. For example, in verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Well, he's clearly not just talking about Timothy and himself there. He's talking about all those who have been redeemed, all those who have been brought to Christ. And he does it again in verse 14. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So all Christians have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. We have our Lord Jesus Christ as an advocate with the Father, but we have an advocate within. We have the Spirit of life and light and power given to us by God. This really, if you think about it, is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's a glorious thing. The life of God, someone has said, in the soul of man. Paul refers to it repeatedly in his letters. God is the God who has come to dwell not only with us, but actually by his Spirit living within us. So we are not only justified before God's law, transferred from the law court into the family by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not only adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters, but we've been given new life, the life of the mysterious and marvelous and miraculous God. Jesus spoke repeatedly of this, and so to the apostles. You remember how in Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with it, when Christian comes to the interpreter's house, he sees a man throwing water onto a fire. And the more water he throws onto the fire, the brighter the fire burns. And he's puzzled by it, but the interpreter takes him around behind the fireplace, and there's someone else who is pouring on oil onto the fire. It's Bunyan's picture of the devil trying to quench the work of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ pouring his spirit into our hearts so that the oil of his grace keeps our hearts and our lives burning. So the Christian in that sense is an exceptional person because we have received an exceptional gift, not because we are exceptional, we are not, most certainly not, but because God has given us this exceptional gift, his blessed, gracious Holy Spirit.
This is a real challenge. It's clearly a challenge to people in the world. Do they have this? Whatever else they've got. Do they have this? Do they have this spirit within them of power, love, a sound mind? Is that true? It's a challenge to religious people. People who profess some kind of faith. It may not be the Christian faith, or it may. Do people really believe in the living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his Son, in his Spirit? Do they really believe, or is it a kind of tradition, kind of formal nod or assent to a series of ideas and propositions? Do they have within them something else other than just a nominal association with a particular religious idea. And it's a challenge to the Christian. Have we forgotten this? Do we realize it? Is this something that's at the heart of our life and our daily existence? Have we perhaps forgotten the sheer glory and wonder of having received from God his eternal spirit? Well, we do need to be reminded of it, don't we? Constantly. There are so many things to discourage us and hold us back. We are at war, after all, with the enemy of our souls. We are to look behind the fireplace. We may think these New Testament Christians were exceptional people, but they weren't. They were ordinary people like you and me. But they had an extraordinary Savior and were indwelt by an extraordinary Holy Spirit. So outwardly, we are all much like other people, afflicted by the same problems and troubles. But inwardly, there is this radical change that has taken place. And it's meant to show. I don't mean in some showy way. I don't mean superficially. I'm not talking now about temperament. Some people are naturally buoyant by temperament. And you might think, well, they clearly have got hold of this. It's not that. There are other people who are not buoyant by temperament. They tend to be depressive. They tend to be introspective and introverted. But it's true of them as well, this deep, deep reality. And people are meant to notice it and should notice it. They shouldn't really be able to understand the Christian. It's a terrible thing, isn't it, if people pity Christians. Perhaps there's only one thing that's more terrible than that, and that is that we should envy people in the world. Not at all. God has done this amazing thing, and it's right that we should regard ourselves in the right way and regard God's grace in the right way. So what does it mean? What does Paul mean when he says, we have received not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind? Well, there are many things of which we may be afraid. We are not, in this body of ours, unaffected and untouched by fear. We know what it is to be afraid. We can be afraid of failure, afraid of the future, afraid of not being able to cope afraid of ourselves, afraid of the possibility of being rejected at the judgment. 
We can be afraid of God in the wrong way. There's a right way to be fearful in the presence of God, to be reverent and full of awe in his majesty. But there's a wrong fear of God, as though he were somehow against us, rather than for us, rather than his love being holy and true and powerful. God doesn't make us fearful. That's not the way God deals with us. The devil would. The devil would cast us down. He would make us afraid. We have to fight the devil. We've recently had a very moving email from a dear friend in Yorkshire. She's been diagnosed with grade three and four cancer of the brain. She came home on Friday. They've removed 80% of the cancer, but it's still there. And she said, when I first realized what was happening to me, uh, a cloud of darkness came upon me. But since then, it's gone. The promises of God, the presence of Christ, the reality of the Holy Spirit with me has been wonderful. And she's speaking candidly and honestly. Now, the devil would keep us under that cloud of darkness if he could. He is the accuser. Look at you, he'll say. Look at you. You tell me that you're a Christian. Well, how pathetic you are. Were you really converted at all? Look at you, fallen, fickle, a failure. You seem so weak, so useless. The accuser. He's at us constantly. He's the antagonist. He's against us. Paul tells us that we are wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in heavenly places. This malignant, powerful enemy who induces fear and oppresses us. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. I will remember the Reverend Arthur Neal coming to speak to us at the theological training course at Printerion on the, those five references in Ephesians to the heavenly places. It was a wonderful occasion. You remember how Paul speaks about the heavenly places of the region of every spiritual blessing that God has granted to his people in Christ. And then he tells us that Christ himself has been raised up and made to sit in heavenly places, all principalities and powers beneath his feet. And then wonderfully, we've been raised up and made to sit with him in heavenly places. So these principalities and powers are beneath our feet. And then it's through the church that God's manifold wisdom in uniting people who are separated, people who are different, people who don't seem to belong to each other, uniting them in one body and thereby witnessing to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. And then finally, we wrestle against these powers, but we wrestle and the purpose of a wrestler is to keep his opponent down, beneath his feet. And that's what we do if we are Christians. So God has not given us a spirit of fear. Instead, he's given us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. It's very important, I think, to know what this spirit of power means. There are substitutes for it. 
in the 19th century, Cardinal Newman, brought up actually in an evangelical reformed home, but became an Anglo-Catholic in the Church of England and then a Roman Catholic. During his Anglican days, he wanted to reform, renew, revitalize the Church of England in the 1830s. And he thought that the way to do that was by a scholarly learned ministry. And he went back to the early fathers and to the Caroline divines of the 17th century. But there's a lot to be learned from them, to be sure. But they were emphasizing things like the Eucharist and the priesthood. Instead of looking for the power of God upon the word of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Scholarship is an excellent thing. But that's not the way in which the church is going to be revitalized. It will be revitalized through the power of the Holy Spirit. Scholarship can be a substitute for that. So can enthusiasm, trying to work things up, trying to create an impression through music, drama, entertainment, you name it. Personalities. Where's the Holy Spirit? Where does he come into it all? I think of a man whose father was greatly used in the O4 revival. And this particular man used to play an accordion. And someone said to him one day, why do you play the accordion? Your father never did. Oh no, he said, my father had the Holy Spirit. It's a devastating thing to say. But it's true. Who's in control? Who's orchestrating what's happening? Who's organizing it? No, it's the power, not of enthusiasm, not of scholarship, but the power of the truth, the power of the gospel, the power of the word of God, the cross of Christ. Paul knew that. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He draws attention to Christ, not to himself. As Spurgeon said, when I looked at the dove, he flew away. But when I looked to the Lord Jesus Christ, the dove flew into my heart. It's the Holy Spirit who works through the word of God as we sang. The truth, the word, that's the sword of the Spirit. So it's the power of the gospel, the power of the truth, the power of the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ to wash away our sins, to make us clean before God, ultimately to land us safe on Canaan's shore. The power of the truth, and it's the power of God in daily life. Peter and John after Pentecost seemed to be different men, didn't they? They spoke with boldness, not aggress aggressively, not, not offensively, but with boldness. That wasn't theirs. It was given to them. It was a strong conviction held and expressed with grace and with tenderness. God's help in daily life. There it is in those men. And we have it ourselves in the difficulties of daily life, in the hardships of daily life. There is this inner power, this inner resource which is more than physical, it's something beyond physical, something much greater than 
the body, something that actually enables us to cope with the body, which is sometimes a difficult thing for us to, to do. But the power of God and of his truth and of his word in daily life is a wonderful thing, this friend I've just referred to. She's finding all the promises of God in the scriptures, living and alive and coming to her in a new way now that she's uncertain about her future. And it shows, doesn't it? It shows in our speech. It shows in the way we live. Howell Harris used to speak about the old authority by which he meant that uh, unction, that un coming down of the Holy Spirit upon him. It's not just eloquence. It's the kind of thing that happened when Samuel Davis and Gilbert Tennant came over from America and went to hear George Whitfield one evening at, uh, at Whitfield's Tabernacle in London. And as they arrived, it was, it was early, but the place was packed, and eventually Whitfield began to preach, and it, he was incoherent, Samuel Davis said at the beginning, incoherent. Imagine George Whitfield being incoherent. Then suddenly, everything changed. The Holy Spirit came upon him. He was lifted. He began to preach in a way that said that there was an extraordinary event taking place. Davis said, I would gladly do that journey back and forth the Atlantic, on the Atlantic by ship, to have experienced what I experienced that night. His matter was ordinary, but his unction was extraordinary. This is the Holy Spirit. This is what happens in times of revival, gloriously. It shows in the way we speak, and particularly in those who preach the gospel, but not just those who preach the gospel, in the way we witness to our friends and neighbors and colleagues and families. The power, the power is the power of the truth, the power of the gospel, the power of God. And Paul says we've also received the spirit of love. God's love, this wonderful love that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Those who have the Holy Spirit have love. It means an assurance of God's love to us. Romans 8 is all about this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Paul reminds us of all those hardships, all those difficulties that come our way in life. But he said, none of them is able to separate us from the love of God. This is the love of the one who loved us. And he's referring there to the cross. He's referring to Christ's death for us on the cross. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, who loved us there, who loved us in giving his life for us, who loved us in bearing our sins and God's wrath. And nothing can separate us from that. Nothing. In all creation, in heaven and earth, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And this love that we know in our hearts from God spills over to one another. It spills over to believers. See how these Christians love one another. We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. It spills over to unbelievers, to people of other religions, people with whom we may not normally have any kind of contact. Someone has taken the letters of the word Islam, 
to read, I sincerely love all Muslims. So we see people as people beyond their appearance. We see them as people who are in need of God's grace and love. It spills over to other people, the power of love. What a powerful thing that is in this world of hatred. God has given us a spirit of love to exercise and to embody. And then Paul, the great theologian, also begins to employ a touch of what we call cognitive therapy. God has given us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind, self-control, if you like. He's applying the sermon, so to speak to daily life. He's saying, very well, is this what you really are, Timothy? Is this what you really believe? You've received a spirit of power and love, very well. How are you going to live? How are you going to express this in your daily life? Timothy, don't be fearful, don't give up, don't languish, don't feel sorry for yourself, don't hide away. Self-discipline, overcoming the tyranny of moods, enabling us to live every day for the glory of God. This is the way to live the Christian life. It's practical. It affects the way we are every day of our lives. When I was a boy, my cousin Douglas and I used to travel up on the Ronda line from Nabaravan to Triorki to visit my brother and his wife in Tonopandi. And we'd catch the train at Aberavan Station. And of course, in those days, the tracks were laid in sections. And it's a very steep uh, incline. And the train, as it started off, would be going over these tracks, and we would be saying to each other, I think I can. I think I can. And then, I hope I can. I hope I can. And the train would go up the valley, past Abergwynvy, and then through the tunnel into the Ronda at some speed. And then we would say to each other, I can, I can, I can. That's the Christian. Not I think I can, I hope I can. Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. J.I. Packer's lovely little book, Weakness is the Way, is a little treasure. It's only 90 pages or so long. And he's really saying in that book that it's our weakness that God is interested in because it's through our weakness that his strength is made perfect. And that's so profoundly true. So we have to realize it. We are to remember who we are. We are to remember that God has given us this amazing gift of his spirit. And to live in that way. To live day by day in all the hardships, difficulties. The pain, the sickness, the illness, the bereavement, the sorrow, the sadness. The weariness, the weakness of life. We have the spirit of God within us. Quickening our mortal bodies. The earnest of our inheritance the guarantee of the purchased possession. And if you're not a Christian yet, well, call upon God that he might give you his gracious spirit 
that he might do a work within you and cause you to look out from yourself to Christ, to rest upon him, to receive him, to be full of gratitude to God that he's brought you out of your natural introspection and introversion into the glorious freedom and joy of knowing that Christ is your Redeemer and Savior, so that you cease talking about yourself and you begin to talk about him. This is the wonder of the Christian gospel. And we are to go out and live like this. It's hard, I know. The Christian life is far from easy. But we have a glorious and a wonderful Redeemer, and we have the Holy Spirit of God within us. May we live and love each other in the Spirit, and may we know the power of God day by day in our daily lives so that we triumph through God's grace.